Mormon Discussion Podcast is about helping Latter-day Saints like you lead with faith while tackling deeper, complex issues within Mormonism. All financial support goes directly towards keeping the podcast alive and supporting listeners like you. To support the podcast, please consider becoming a premium subscriber at mormondiscussionpodcast.org. Again, that's mormondiscussionpodcast, all one word, dot org. You can do this for as little as $1.50 a month or $12 a year. And this will also reward you by letting you listen to premium episodes like this one months before the general public has access. Thanks for listening. And now, on to what you've been waiting to hear. Dwayne Alexander Miller, welcome to Mormon Discussion. How are you today? I'm doing great. Thanks. Good, good. Glad to have you on. One of my listeners uh, recommended that you and I sit down and have a conversation. And and when I pulled up uh, what you're doing, I, I got quite excited. Dwayne Miller is the author of Living Among the Breakage, Contextual Theology Making in Ex-Muslim Christians. Dwayne, how are you doing? How's life treating you? Oh, well, things are going great. I'm happy to have that book finally published. I remember uh, when I was working on my PhD through Edinburgh University in South I was switching with Israel and was running all over the world trying to find ex-Muslims that I could hang out with and, you know, listen to them pray and uh, read their stories, hear their stories, watch uh, how they did evangelism in the streets, all that sort of stuff. So it was a pretty, it was a pretty hectic uh, couple of years there. Um, but, you know, the end of the matter is better than the beginning. So I'm, I'm happy that that's a resource available for the, uh, the religious community and the, and the scholarly community as well. Excellent, excellent. I wonder if you could just start it, to start us off because because you're you're not uh, a member of the LDS faith, people are going to be completely foreign to you. At least most of my listeners. If you would maybe just give a brief bio of yourself and uh, and then we'll jump into some discussion. Yeah, I didn't grow up in a religious household at all. I was what we call in sociology a nun, N O N E. I grew up really no religion. I didn't know Christmas was uh, related to the birth of Jesus or that Easter was related to his resurrection. Uh, I was like actually like a lot of just American kids today. Uh, when I was a teenager living in the city of Puebla, Mexico, uh, a friend of mine named Aaron uh, invited me to his church. Uh, his dad was the pastor. It's a little Bible church, so an evangelical Christian church. And I started going. It was meeting in a lady's garage. And uh, and I was just really uh, interested because, you know, in, in Mexico, uh, being part of a church other than a couple of the Roman Catholic churches, it doesn't get you anywhere in society. You're not going to make good contacts or anything like that there. But I just saw these people coming together every Sunday to, to sing and to worship. And it was very, uh, very interesting to me. So that was my the beginning of my path towards the Christian faith. Eventually, I I made a confession of faith. Uh, later on, um, when I was in college, I was studying philosophy, and uh, my mentor at a Christian ministry for the university invited me to go to an Anglican church. So this is a liturgical church, meaning that there is kind of a set pattern for praying, worshiping, uh, uh, set readings from scripture. We have the whole Christian church calendar, so right now it's Advent, and then the 12 days of Christmas, which begin on the 25th, incidentally and so on and so forth. This was very ordered to me, um, but it was fascinating. So I started, I started doing that, and ultimately um, kind of having a, a way of, of living out the Christian faith that was 
that was personal, but that also had really deep roots in terms of history. Uh, you know, that wasn't just the pastor or the elder making it up or something like that. I, that, that attracted me. It attracted my, uh, the young lady who I was dating at the time, Sharon. And then we eventually decided to become Anglican, uh, Christians. So that is the, the tradition that we belong to. Uh, my Episcopal church, that's part of that larger Anglican uh, communion right now. So, Dwayne, I know with this new book that you've written, uh, Living Among the Breakage, Contextual Theology Making and Ex-Muslim Christians, I know your work entails uh, you kind of observing the data of Muslims breaking away from their, their you know, Islam faith and entering Christianity. Um, what were the key components of one coming out of the Muslim faith to join Christianity? What are, what are some of the things you've observed kind of in that process? Yeah, religious conversion uh, is is a complex process. So, uh, really, anytime we study it, uh, with conversion, uh, we're talking about turning away from an old way of life, an old faith, uh, and turning to something new. That really is what we see happening with people who make the the quite difficult decision to leave Islam and to become Christians. Uh, just from the outset, let me note that the traditional penalty. Uh, according to the Islamic Sharia, for leaving Islam uh, for another religion or no religion is death. That's not radical Islam. That's not extremist Islam. That's just traditional Orthodox Islam. So uh, it, it's a pretty enormous uh, decision to make. In terms of turning away from Islam, um, I think a lot of people, unless you have Muslim friends that you spend time with, are not aware that there is a whole lot of soul-searching going on right now in the Muslim world, a lot of people are asking questions like, you know, the Quran says that we're, you know, we Muslims, we're the best of all the people in the world, um, but they're not seeing it. Um, Muslims are asking questions like, you know, if we're the best people in the world, um, then why do we have to send our kids over to Europe and the States, you know, the lands of the unbelievers or the Christians, in order to get an education? Um, why is it that the Muslim world seems, uh, to a significant degree, sort of um, stuck in this rut of corruption and violence and revenge? So Muslims are really are asking these questions. Again, they don't usually come out and just say it openly unless you get to know them. But there's a lot of soul searching going on. So um, one reason that some Muslims are are questioning Islam is because. With all the rise of terrorism, uh, some Muslims look at the look at the cases made by people like uh, Osama bin Laden or the the Caliph of the Islamic State. They read their religious uh, reasoning and they say, you know what, that really is Islam. Uh, it really is violent like that. Not not everyone makes that decision, but some of them do. And then they say, I don't want to have anything to do with that. I'm going to look for another way of life. Uh, there are other reasons, too, that we find people becoming disappointed with Islam. For some people, they look at much of the world, Korea, India, and they see advancement, they see uh, prosperity, they see discovery, and they say, you know, what's keeping the Muslim world back? You know, why is it that Pakistan and India, um, why is India more prosperous than Pakistan? At the time of partition, Pakistan, which is almost entirely Muslim, was more prosperous than India, but today it's the other way around. So some Muslims are coming to the conclusion, you know, Islam is holding us back. Um, it is incompatible with modernity. It's incompatible with human rights, which I would I would agree it really is. Uh, be 
precisely because, you know, a fundamental human right is that every human has the right to determine how they're going to relate to God, or even if they're not going to relate to God. Uh, and Islam, by not allowing Muslims to leave Islam, doesn't do that. Of course, anyone can become a Muslim, but it's a one-way street. Um, women's rights, that's another one. I knew a young lady from, from uh, South Africa, and she was just going to a secular college, and she had to do a paper on women in the workplace or something like that. And she came from a Muslim family and decided, you know what, I've always heard that Muhammad was like a real hero of women's rights back in the 7th century. So I'm going to do something on that. And she did some digging and she read the Islamic historical sources about how Muhammad interacted with women. And, and she was really startled and, and became very disappointed and decided uh, that she had to find some other way of, of knowing God and living with God. So all of those are different reasons why people are becoming disappointed with Islam. But obviously, in terms of Christianity, you not only have to turn away from Islam, you have to turn to Christianity. Uh, there are two primary destinations for people who become disappointed with Islam. One of them is just kind of secular humanism, generally atheistic or agnostic, but the other really is Christianity, and even then it tends to be evangelical and charismatic Christianity. There are others. You'll find some converts to LDS, Roman Catholic, Orthodox, but primarily it does tend to be evangelical and charismatic Christianity. Um, so what are the uh, things that attract Muslims to the Christian faith? I'll give you just a couple of them. Uh, when we do surveys or and we, we read research about, you know, why why Muslims are becoming Christians, one of the main things that comes up a lot is dreams and visions. Now, a dream or a vision is never enough to totally get a person into the Christian faith because sooner or later you have to have a personal relationship with an actual flesh and blood uh, Christian. Um, but uh, a lot of them do mention dreams or visions, sometimes of Jesus, but sometimes of other biblical figures that you'd recognize, John the Baptist, uh, Mary, and so on. Um, so that's that's a key element that pops up in many conversion stories. Another one is the person of Jesus. Um, you know, we are oftentimes get so used to reading the Gospels that we forget uh, just how compelling the personality of Jesus Christ can be. Uh, you know, how with the, the really strong, powerful people, he's often very sharp, but then with the weak and the humble, he's very, he's very, uh, he's very humble and he's very accepting. Um, uh, so just the personality of Jesus, also how he treated women, uh, how he treated children, uh, that can be quite attractive, too. Um, another one, and I, I would say the main one, just really has to do with the love of God. Um, you know, people who are used to a worldview informed by Scripture are very used to this idea that that God is unconditionally loving, uh, that he loves us unconditionally. He loves us when we're good. He even loves us when we're when we're bad. And uh you know, we have verses like the verse from First John that says God is love. You know, in Islam you can never really say something like that. You cannot say God is love. Now in Islam God may be loving. He certainly loves you if you're righteous and good, but if you're not righteous and good, then he hates you or he's opposed to you. So the the image of a God of unconditional love is, is very beautiful and very attractive to uh, to many of these converts. 
In fact, I think that's the main thing. And I really developed that idea a lot in the last, in the last chapter of, uh, of living along the breakage. You know, in Islam, the power of God makes him very transcendent and very far. In Christianity, and especially as we approach Christmas, you know, we, we, we reflect on this. Um, you know, the, the power and the, the majesty of God is all given up for the sake of this cradle and this manger. So, um, for Islam, that's very, it's almost blasphemous. I mean, at best it's nonsense, but at worst it really is blasphemy. Um, but for, uh, for me, and especially for these believers, what I found is for them that's more compelling. You know, the God who in his love gives up his majesty is greater than the God who is so powerful that he can't do that. I've got a young man who, who again, I live in St. George, Utah. I've got a young man who left the Muslim faith and was investigating Mormonism and and as you point out, like he was talking about just how much risk there was on his life if he went back to his home country to visit his family. And, and you kind of brought that out as well. It's amazing that, that these people are courageous enough to take that chance. It also makes me wonder how many more would, would make that shift if, if they felt no risk or danger at all. Yeah, it, it really is uh, quite difficult. Now, on average, you know, just in general, uh, Muslims are not going to get killed for um, for leaving Islam. That is indeed what the traditional Orthodox Sharia says that should happen to them, and sometimes it does happen. But like in the Middle East, where I spent a lot of the last uh, decade or so, um, you know, they're going to lose their job um, when they convert out of Islam to anything else. They legally cease to exist. That's that's legally what happens. So all of your real property, any contracts that you've that you've made, including the marital contract, those are all dissolved. You are a dead person. Um, so so many of these converts end up fleeing from from the Middle East. We could say the same thing about Pakistan and, and other places too. But what's amazing is that it really is happening. And you know, beginning in the 1960s. Um, Something very surprising started happening. I talk about this in chapter three, I think, which is that there's been this real substantial surge in terms of the number of Muslims around the world converting to uh, Christianity. Uh, one of the most quickly growing churches in the world right now is in Iran. Um, and it's not one of the old historical churches, you know, the Assyrians or the Armenians. It is a church consisting almost entirely of Shia Muslims who leave Islam and become charismatic Christians. Uh, so it really is going on. It was happening in Algeria. Uh, over the last two summers, I had the pleasure of teaching in Turkey. And, you know, there was no such thing as an indigenous Turkish church uh, in Turkey uh, 50 years ago. But it's, it's not particularly big. It's struggling. It's poor. It is to some degree persecuted. Um, but but it's pretty light, but it's there, and uh, new people are coming to faith and being baptized. Um, what happens a lot when people come to the States, is or anywhere in the West really, is for the first time in their life, they actually have the freedom to go and explore different ways of life. Now, that can be bad stuff, you know, going out to the bars and sleeping around, which does happen. Um, but it can also be good stuff, like going to church, which they never could have done back home. Uh, even if they had a local church, they, they can go to it, because then everybody would know. But they're, they're a foreign student, or maybe they're a refugee. Uh, we're seeing a lot of refugees in Europe uh, converting 
to uh, to Christianity. I mean, some of them, you know, they look at Syria, they look at their home country, and they say that's what Islam does to a country: Muslim killing Muslim. Eight different groups of Muslims all saying we're the real Muslims and all trying to kill each other. And they just want they want something better. And they find Jesus, you know, who says stuff like, "If you live by the sword, you're going to die by the sword," or um, you know, turn the other cheek, uh, which, which is a different kind of ethos. It's a different rhythm to life. It's a different ethic. Uh, and I think a lot of them find that very uh, attractive, even if it's very difficult to live out. Right, right. Um, in the book, in your book, Living Among the Breakage, you talk about this idea that with with these these Muslims who are leaving their their <clears throat> faith of their childhood and they're coming into Christianity, that that. Christianity in some ways, because of them, there's new theologies kind of coming out of this. And, and I want to get you to kind of expound on what you mean by that, that <clears throat> these, these, these Christians who have this Muslim background embedded in them, it, it sounds like there's something within their identity that they're bringing into their Christianity that, that those Christian churches then are, are becoming something maybe anew or, or afresh about them. Maybe expound on that for a moment. So the, the subtitle of the book is Contextual Theology Making. So we have all these different types of theology. You know, what is theology? Theology is the study of God according to his revelation. Now, different people can differ about what is revelation. Is the Bible revelation? Is the Quran revelation? Is the Bhagavad Gita revelation? So, uh, but... Um, we're talking about theology, and contextual theology refers to that theology that grows up within that particular context. Um, what does it look like for people who are converts from Shia Islam and living in, uh, you know, Midwest America to live out and to develop their own uh, contextual theology? So let me give you uh, two things. One thing is positive and one thing is negative, just as examples. One thing that's negative, that's quite difficult, uh, is that a lot of these believers, they bring into Christianity um, how to read a text. So the way that they used to read the Quran, a lot of them, especially in the Arab world, bring that right into Christianity. And the Quran is a flat text. You don't have to ask, okay, you know, who was Paul writing to? Or, you know, how is Mark different than Luke? You know, how is Mark trying to write a different type of gospel that's communicating different material to a different audience than Luke, yet Mark and Luke are not two different stories that don't agree with each other. So they're not used to asking those kinds of questions. Also, the Quran, I mean, was all given during the, the career of Muhammad, which was 23 years, so it was not a very not a very lengthy career, much longer than Jesus' career, which was about three years uh, in, in Palestine. So they're also not used to this idea of, you know, reading Isaiah, which is hundreds of years before Christ, and then, uh, you know, reading, um, you know, Thessalonians, which is what, you know, probably in the 40s AD, so extremely early. So they're not used to dealing with the texture of, um, of a text like, like the Bible. So that's a real difficulty. But then I'll give you something that's really positive, is that a lot of them are much more community, um, oriented and much more hospitable. Uh, I really had to get used to being in America again after moving back a couple of years ago because, you know, 
I lived in the Middle East for years, and I was just used to being invited into people's homes, and you didn't have to know someone. They'd invite you over. And then I would see people, you know, that I knew from church or from the university where I was teaching that I hadn't seen in many years. And instead of saying, hey, bring your family over to my house, you know, they would say, hey, let's meet at Starbucks. And instead of let's hang out for three or four hours and just really spend half a day together, it was like 45 minutes because then they had a meeting. Okay, you know, I get it. It was still nice to catch up with that guy or that lady, but it's not the same thing. So a lot of the Christians who come from Islam, because they come from societies and communities that are are very interested and very devoted to community and family, um, a lot of them will bring that over into into Christianity, uh, which I think is is a is a great asset. In many ways, the way they practice hospitality is more biblical than than the way that just regular white Christians really from any church uh, in America do. I, I'm curious, you know, watching this and observing this and kind of seeing the data as these folks come out and, and enter the Christian faith, I'm curious kind of what this has done for your own faith journey. For you personally, what kind of things have you learned uh, or implemented into your own faith as you've kind of watched this process take place? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so I was uh, walking with my doctoral supervisor, Dr. Elizabeth Coping, uh, over at Edinburgh. We were walking down to George Square, which is the place where uh, I was going to do my defense. So uh, I had to go defend my thesis or my doctoral dissertation there with two other professors. And that's actually one of the first questions that the professor asked, uh, you know, how did this how did this change you? For me, um, well, and this is interesting since, I mean, you're LDS, but it really Help, it really forced me to think a lot about the Trinity. So that's a very fascinating topic. And, uh, you know, in Orthodox Christianity, traditional uh, historic Christianity, what is the doctrine of the Trinity? Um, it's one of those things that people just assume they know what it is. But when you are living with Muslims and then you're dealing with Christians who came from Islam and who are asking these questions and saying, hey, buddy, you're the guy with the MA in theology. Tell me what this is. You know, or you're just hanging out with Muslims and they're like, what is this thing? What do you have, like three gods? What is that? You know, you really have to uh, be able to articulate what that is. And it, and it forced me to come to something that is my understanding of, of the traditional doctrine of the Trinity is that it really is God's experience of God's self. One God in three persons. We wouldn't say individuals. That that would be incorrect in, in historical theology. Um, but... How is that different also than the monadic God of Islam? This, I think, was one of the greatest insights that I learned, and this was from a from a from a young lady who was Iranian, who had come from a Shia Muslim family into a Lutheran Christianity, actually. And she said, "You know, the difference is that the the God of Islam, being all alone, he's a monad. That's the technical word. He cannot." be essentially loving because apart from creation, he had nothing to love and no one to love. And the very nature of love is that it requires the other. Love has to be given and received. If one loves oneself, then that that's not really the nature of love. Uh, and she said the Trinitarian God is that community in one God sharing one essence with three persons 
Um, and that's why the Trinitarian God, and she quotes Saint Saint, uh, Saint Augustine, which I thought was pretty impressive, um, and said that God, even apart from creation, is a community of love within his one self. Now, I know LDS would not hold to any of that, but you asked a question about, you know, where did this lead me? And that's that's definitely one of the main things that, uh, that came to my mind. Absolutely. And, and you're going to find, I mean, the listeners of this podcast are, are completely open to to people's truths being different, and that's not going to be offensive at all. So I appreciate you sharing that. I I know that like most of us early on in our lives, at least as teenagers and young adults, we're, we're really kind of stuck in an ethnocentric view where our tribe is the best, it's us versus them, and all we're trying to do is get people to join us because we know we're right. And as Christians who are helping these Muslims make this transition – I've got to, I've got to believe this is having an impact on them as well. That, that as you're working to help someone of another faith come into your tribe, come into the Christian faith, that, that maybe there's an effort or an awareness that I need to know more about these people. And, and I'm just curious if you're seeing these Christians who are helping these Muslims in, if they're, what the impact has been on them. So one of, one of the main other areas, we're not doing an interview about that, but it, but that I've specialized in over the, over the years is the history of Protestant mission in the Middle East. Uh, it's a pretty obscure topic, but uh, it comes to mind because of your question, Bill. At first, and you could say the same thing about Africa and Latin America. At first, it really was okay. You want to be a Christian, then you have to live like us. And and really, there was this insistence: dress like us, eat like us, talk like us. Um, believe like us, but I think what we're witnessing, and I, I'll give you a year specifically in a moment, what we're witnessing lately though is really the shift away from a, a bunch of Christian churches dominated by Western paradigms to a return to global Christianity, really what we had during, for example, the early Middle Ages and, and, um, and earlier as well. There's no question in my mind that um, people are transformed by working with these uh, with these believers, and um, one of the main things that helped me to kind of wrap my mind around uh, the sort of interaction. Right, you have the people who come from their culture; they're the believers, and we're trying as teachers and leaders in the church and ministers and so on. Uh, to help these people who come from an Arab or Persian or Turkish or Kazakh or fill-in-the-blank background to become Christians. But we're trying to be sensitive and not force them to be like us. But on the other hand, we're trying to give them uh, the resources so they can do theology by. That's one of the key ideas that I uh, introduce in, in Living Among the Breakage. Uh, contextual theology can't be done for somebody else. It has to be done by the indigenous community. Uh, that's actually one of the main reasons I decided to do this research uh, to begin with. I was living in Jordan, uh, working on a diploma in Arabic, so, so was my wife. And I met a couple of inquirers or secret believers, and I thought, wow, these people are really interesting. I want to know more about them. So I started pulling up, uh, you know, articles in different online journals and stuff like that. And I found that there were a bunch of American scholars and then missionaries 
who were saying, you know, when Fatima becomes a Christian or becomes a believer in Christ, it should look like this. She should continue to wear the hijab um, in order to respect her family. She should continue to fast during Ramadan, uh, but just do a Christian fast instead of a Muslim fast. Or you also got the other argument. No, she should not wear the hijab because she is no longer under that oppressive system that makes women cover their heads. No, she should not fast because, you know, you're not fasting to earn your salvation before God. Like in Islam, you're fasting because for something for some other reason. So that's why I thought I just want to go and meet these people and figure out what they believe and who they are and what is their own faith that they are building. And I, I try to come alongside them, um, ask them questions, answer their questions. But I'm very careful when I'm in Turkey or Tunisia or or one of these other countries that I visit from time to time to never tell the local Christians, you should do this. I say, well, here's a historical example of what some guys did. Or here's an example from scripture that will hopefully give you some wisdom to guide you as you make your decision. But I really don't like that, you know, coming to them and saying, this is what you must do. I I really try never to do that. I love that. I love that. I love that just that these conversations are taking place, that some of these same kinds of conversations are taking place within Mormonism. We're, We're talking today with Dwayne Alexander Miller, author of Living Among the Breakage, Contextual theology making and ex-Muslim Christians. I, I want to get kind of a feel for what you just talked about, which is these conversations that we have when, when we've had a tradition of doing things a certain way. And, and the example that you're going through in the book is that this idea of here's these Christian faiths who are taking in these Muslims who are leaving Islam and in that transition of having to decide, like, do they really need to look like us? Do they need, really need to act like us? What is essential to being a Christian? Do we need to completely reconstruct their entire world or we do, do we let them take some of that with them? And, and some of that's happening in Mormonism right now. And I, and I wanted to get a feel from you as a, as a member of the Anglican church. Uh, maybe on a couple of key topics, just see like how you guys are handling these things and, and maybe it'll, it'll give kind of a, uh, some wisdom to us. You guys have been around a lot longer. You're a lot bigger. I think you mentioned earlier, um, the mem- number of members that uh, the Anglican church has and it's, it's far, far greater than what the, the what the Mormon church has. And, and again, having been around so long, there's all this experience, but I want to pin on a couple of issues and, and one is the LGBT issue, which, which at least in the Western world is really coming to the surface and we're beginning to recognize that, that we've, that we need to give these people civil rights and, and, and to be more tolerant and accepting. And, and there's obviously a debate on where that line is. I wanted to see how the Anglican church is handling that issue at the moment. That is really the, the hot button issue. Uh, so the Anglican communion is a communion of, I think it's about 37 provinces. So these are regional churches. We we don't have anything like the Roman Catholic Church where there's like one top guy. We're sort of a confederacy uh, of of uh, of churches, but we do number 70 to 80 million people around the world. Some of them, uh, you know, electric guitars and drums. Some of them, incense and uh, rosaries. I mean, you're going to find a little bit of everything. It's a very broad. Uh, communion, which, uh, some people, it drives them crazy. I, I tend to like it, but it does mean that you have to deal with all these different issues. 
So, um, on one side, you have the church in the States and the Anglican Church in Canada. Uh, the church in the States, the older one, is called the Episcopal Church, and that's actually an Anglican body, although it's kind of on the naughty list right now. And it's precisely because of this issue of human sexuality. Um, so a lot of the leaders in the Episcopal Church in the USA, they say this is a question of justice. You know, God created humanity, and it's the standard liberal theology that, you know, most people have heard. I'm certainly very used to it. And I have some friends and colleagues who espouse it. I personally hold to a, a traditional vision of, of uh, marriage and, and sexual ethics. Um, so that's going on to the point where you are going to have even bishops who live with their gay partner and within their diocese or their regional church, everyone thinks, hey, this is fine, you know. But then that's really the minority position. The last time that all the bishops of the world got together to make sort of official pronouncements was in 1998 at Lambeth Palace. Lambeth is in England, and that's the palace of the Archbishop of Canterbury. Yes, he still has a palace. How's that for fan- or fancy? And they got together in 1998 is a date that I actually alluded to in the last answer because uh, for historians, you know, we love to have a date, the date when uh, the, the classical period ended and the Middle Ages started. We love dates. Uh, we know that they're just sort of fuzzy borderlines. But 1998 is a key date in the history of Christianity because it's the first time that you had the rich, wealthy, powerful churches of the West uh, and the majority of the leaders there, England, United States, Canada, um, Ireland, Scotland. And then you had all of these leaders from the two-thirds world, Africa, Latin America, different parts of Asia, and they got together in 1998, and the the people from the West, a lot of them, they wanted to advance a liberal vision of marriage and human sexuality. But these bishops, because they had so many new churches and new believers in Africa and other places, Latin America too, Asia, uh, they were able to, in the for, for the first time in, in probably over a thousand years, to say, no, you guys in the West, you think you know what's right. You think you have a vision of, you know, justice and the Bible and so on and so forth. But we're going to say no. And they got shut down. And 1998 remains sort of the official position of the Anglican Church, which is that sex is only appropriate within the marriage of a man and a woman. So straight up standard uh, classic Christian uh, morality. But go, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, um, but but this really is causing a lot of problems because back in 2003, the Episcopal Church in the state said, oh, you know, we're going to ordain a guy named Gene Robinson to become the bishop of New Hampshire, tiny little diocese. Um, but he was in a same sex marriage and he had been divorced twice, which for a lot of people, that was also a problem uh, or maybe divorced once. Um, and then after that happened, uh, the good number of the churches from around the world, the more conservative ones in Africa, Latin America, and Asia, they said, you know what, America, we're not in communion with you. Previously, if someone had been ordained in Wyoming, they could go to Uganda, and they were going to say, yep, you are a legitimate presbyter of the church, uh, or priest or elder, whatever terminology, or it's all the same thing in Greek, um, but not anymore. You know, so we are on shaky ground as a global community uh, it, and it's difficult and uh, we're, we're kind of trying to put the plate together as we fly, I guess. 
Yeah, see, Mormonism is doing much of the same where the, the church is holding this traditional view of marriage the same as, as you're speaking to, but there is, there's a growing minority in the church that, that as, as we become kind of more aware and empathetic to those who are different than us, those who have different challenges than us, that we begin to realize that some things may not seem fair. And so we're having those same conversations within our church as well. Another issue that we've got <clears throat> and all these coughs and stuff, I'll edit out. And if, if you have any coughs, then we'll get rid of those too. Let, let me make a quick note on that. You know, I said earlier that I hold sure. the traditional vision of human sexuality, but on the other hand, I've gotten in trouble the other way because I remember telling a person, uh, yeah, I'd have no problem, you know, attending and being a member of a church uh, with a gay priest or a gay pastor or part of a, uh, a diocese with a gay bishop, if they were uh, single and celibate, I, I would have no problem with that. And and he thought, well, no, that's bad. So I've I've gotten criticism from both sides of that. But yeah, it, it's a it's a tricky world. It is in and even within Mormonism. If you were to go back fifty years ago, you just wouldn't see the LGBT community at all within the framework of the church. And, and yet now you've got church leaders who are standing up and saying like, yes, they, they can't be married to someone of the same gender. They can't be intimate with someone of the same gender. But if, if they're keeping the law of chastity as the church defines it, that they're welcome in the church, they should be fully accepted. They should be in full fellowship. And, and so it's kind of that same standing. Um, one of the other things, and it's kind of tied into this is biblical criticism or what they call higher criticism of the Bible our church, frankly, is behind a long ways, maybe maybe a hundred years. Um, most members of our church, if you went into a Sunday school class and you said, who are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, I bet 80% of the class would say they are firsthand witnesses to to the the life of Jesus. And, and very few people would be aware of some of these higher criticisms of the four Gospels or the Old Testament. Most Mormons would take... Um, much of the Old Testament narrative as literal stories. There would be very little room for figurativeness or allegory. Um, my, I just want to get your thoughts on the Anglican Church, how they approach these issues. Do you feel like your church openly engages biblical criticism? Is there, is there room to have figurative belief in some of these Old Testament uh, stories? For instance, Jonah and the whale or, or um, you know, a garden with trees and fruit when the fall happens. Um, how does your church approach essentially the historicity of scripture and, and maybe even take that a step further and, and share with us if the Anglican church is at all engaging the conversation around the historical Jesus? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the Anglican, uh, the Anglican communion and Anglican churches around the world and Episcopal churches, which is part of that whole thing, um, tend to be oftentimes at the forefront of some of these debates. Now, you're going to find Anglicans around the world who, you know, read Genesis and say that's exactly how it happened. That's like a historical eyewitness record. But um, you're also going to find a lot of people who are saying, you know what, that's not the purpose of the text. So we always ask the question, what, why was this written? So like Jonah, why was Jonah written? Was Jonah written uh, to give us an eyewitness account of this particular instance of the prophet of this guy, Jonah, who does clearly seem to be a historical figure, Jonah, but um, why was it written? Well, maybe the purpose of the book of Jonah 
was really to show us that uh, that God has a great love for even the enemies of his people. He's not just this tribal God. He's not just this God of this one chunk of land, right? Remember the Hebrews, they thought, well, um, you know, God, uh, Yahweh, our God, he's, a, he's kind of a land God. So Jonah wants to get away from the land God, the territory God. He has a typical medieval vision of gods, right? He's got classic basic theology at this time. And he gets in the water because Yahweh is a land God. Well, hey, Yahweh surprises him and he's out there on the water too. And then he gets surprised again because he goes to the city and they actually repent. And then they're spared. So the real significance of the book is, is really not whether it's, it's a historical record or not. I, I find that very uninteresting. Uh, same thing with Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Whether or not that's a historical record or not, I, I don't find that to be a particularly interesting question. Um, I want to get the meaning out of it. You know, why is this in Scripture? What is the moral meaning, the, the theological meaning? What does this teach us about what it means for God to be God and for humans to be humans? Uh, so, yeah, the Anglican Communion is is in the middle of that. A lot of key scholars in the world, both more conservative ones and more um, more liberal ones, you know, they might be part of the same church. They might even go to the same church and teach at the same, uh, same seminary. Um, presently, I don't know if any of your uh, listeners are familiar with N.T. Wright, but he was a Church of England bishop for many years, and I heard him speak here in San Antonio on one occasion, and he takes a pretty uh, conservative, uh, traditional vision of the Gospels um, by Anglican standards. And uh, so, yeah, and, and, and he's really kind of one of the main New Testament scholars in the world uh, today. On the other hand, if you want someone on the liberal edge, you could look at the retired bishop, one of the bishops from New Jersey, Jack Spong. You know, he's a guy who was saying for a while, I think he still says it, you know, we need to get beyond this idea of, of theism. You know, we need to have Christianity without God. Um, well, that doesn't seem to be working any very well, and his diocese is totally falling apart. But uh, aside from that, uh, you're going to find a little bit of everything, uh, and it's uh, it's a broad world. Yeah, both N.T. Wright and uh, uh, Jack Spong, as he likes to be called, but John Shelby Spong mm-hmm. is full name. We've we've used their material on this podcast before, and so the listeners will be familiar with well, both and, of those. And C.S. Lewis. And C.S. Lewis, of course, was yes. an Anglican as well. And T.S. Eliot. Uh, T.S. Eliot became a very Catholic Anglican after flir- flirting with Buddhism. Um, and that's actually where Living Among the Breakage is taken from. That that line, that epigraph is from a T.S. Eliot poem. So all of these are, are Anglicans. Yeah, C.S. Lewis is... Uh, at times I think seen as our church, by our church as kind of like a, a non-Mormon prophet. And what I mean by that is a lot of Latter-day Saints in their, their talks or sermons that they give on Sundays will, will use C.S. Lewis quotes, which I find quite interesting. I, uh, I, I want to finish off with a question that kind of ties back into the book. Again, we're talking with uh, Dwayne Alexander Miller, author of Living Among the Breakage, Contextual Theology Making and Ex-Muslim Christians. Just as we started off talking about these Muslims who are leaving Islam and coming into Christianity, you mentioned at the very beginning that you were one of the nuns, the N-O-N-E-S, before finding Christianity. And and I know within the Christian world, at least here in the West, there's a lot of folks, especially I think in the United States, and, and I think developed countries in general, 
who are leaving organized religion altogether, still holding on to some level of spirituality, but leaving the organized church. And we're experiencing that, I think, very strongly right now in Mormonism. But I'm curious what the Anglican church is doing, just as, just as you're talking about the Christian church bringing these Muslims in and making a space for them. I'm curious what the Anglican church is doing to make a space for the Christians who are there to not at some future point become the nuns. So let, let me give you the answer for the United States, because we could go country by country and you're going to find different things going on in different places. There are two main forms or two main uh, churches, I guess, Anglican churches in, in the United States right now. So the older one, the much larger one is the Episcopal church. The Episcopal church is bleeding members. I'm not happy about that. I have, Many dear friends that I work with and that I love very much are Episcopalians. Um, but that church is uh, what they try to do uh, was really to be totally non-judgmental and to have a very low standard of membership. So traditionally, for example, if you had not been baptized, you could not take communion. That wasn't a way to be a jerk. It wasn't something to keep people out or to say, ah, you're not as good as us. It was just a way of saying, you know what, if you want to take communion, be baptized. That's the way that you confess your faith in Christ. That's the way that you are kind of grafted into this new uh, community, the, the church, the community of the new covenant. Um, but then some churches in the Episcopal Church have said, no, that's exclusive. We don't need to do that. Let's just let anyone come to our table and take communion. So the level and the purpose, the thinking behind that was really to be so welcoming and also to, to be very fuzzy with theology, like, oh, human sexuality, we don't really know about that. Or, you know, even key Christian things, you know, I talked about Jonah maybe maybe being an allegory. Well, there are things where you can say maybe that's an allegory, but like the virgin birth and Christ actually coming back from the dead. Yeah, they were going there. They're like, what does that mean, virgin birth? Maybe that just means he's like real special. And what does that mean, the resurrection? His body didn't actually come back. We know that doesn't happen. So what they were trying to do was really make it welcoming, make it comfortable. But that strategy really didn't work. Um, so that was one strategy. And and as we are seeing now, it's, it's failing. The Episcopal Church has a couple of things that they're trying to do now to see if they can counteract that but we'll we'll have to wait and see if those are effective the other church is a kind of a young scrappy new church it's called the anglican church in north america um, i have many good friends uh, in that church i'm not even going to tell you which one i belong to whether it's acna or tech i'm not even going to tell you that because i don't think it's that important but acna has a vision for church planting um there were some sociological studies done, and, and they found that once a church is established and it's running, um, that it kind of stabilizes, and it, it it fails to reach out into the community and to add new people in from the community. That is the people who are unchurched. However, uh, it, now that doesn't mean the church can't grow, but it means that if it grows, it's people who used to go to a different church, and then they started going to that church. But the ACNA is trying to go out and start these church plants from nothing. They're doing these in everything from nursing homes to coffee houses to bars and taverns. Um, very, very unmormon right there. Um, 
And they're really trying to get out into the community. A good friend of mine is a priest who started a church. It started in his living room. Uh, and he would just invite people from the community, community. And he would go out into the community and just get to know people and invest in personal relationships. And he would do things like uh, brewing night. And just men would get together and brew beer. Again, very, very un-Mormon. But they would get together and brew beer. And it was a way for men to get to know each other because he realized that men don't get to hang out with other men hardly ever, um, unless it's, if it's for work or whatever. But, I mean, just for the sake of spending time together, it, it just in American society, for some reason, has become very rare. We've become a very lonely, solitary people, I think. And he, he realized that. Well, the church is five years old. I think half of the members of his church had no tie whatsoever to any faith at all. Uh, yet they are being baptized. They're baptizing their children. They're being confirmed. Um, and, uh, and they bought uh, an old auto repair shop and it's now just a beautiful church. Uh, I mean, it's, and that's five years. It's a five year old project and it's amazing to see something so hopeful like that. Now, I don't want to say yay ACNA, you know, down with tech at all. That's not what I'm saying. Um, there are good things going on in both churches and both of them have their own uh, challenges and difficulties. Uh, but those are kind of the two different strategies uh, that I that I've seen um, in, in those uh, in, in kind of the Anglican world here in the United States. It's interesting you say that with within Mormonism, the younger generation and kind of those of us who have kind of gone through these faith transitions and and realize that, you know, the world's more messy or our faith is more messy than than what we grew up being taught we're we're kind of wanting this this liberal more progressive church we want the church to move that direction but it's at the same time i i i certainly recognize and i think my listeners would recognize that when you have some rigidity when you have some some traditional things you hold to that that when you give those up you lose some of your vibrancy you lose some of your potential to grow quickly that i think often just the average person out there looking for a church wants a church that claims something and and has some you know claims to play some role in in the in God's plan and and so I certainly can see that um, we're talking today with uh, Dwayne Alexander Miller author of Living Among the Breakage Contextual Theology Making and Ex-Muslim Christians Dwayne where can people find your book at where's the the best place to pick it up Well if you want the Kindle version get it through Amazon it's only 10 bucks uh, if you want to get the print version, uh, especially if you are at an educational institute or uh, some sort of academic library, then the print version is a nice thing to have. Or, I mean, if you're into, you know, studying contextual theology and you want to make your notes in the margin, which is hard to do with a Kindle, I know, um, then get the print version. But if you're going to get the print version, save some money and get it from the publisher's website. It's about $5 cheaper. And the publisher is WIPF and Stock, W-I-P-F. Uh, and stock, S-T-O-C-K. So print version, get it from Whip and Stock's website, and Kindle version, pick that up from uh, Amazon. Awesome. Uh, I'm grateful for the chance to have had you on today to talk about kind of what's going on as Muslims are, are coming into Christianity, some of the things that they're having to deal with as they make that transition, some of the things that 
the the Christian church has to deal with as they wrap their arms around these people who who bring a different identity, who bring a different culture and tradition with them. And and then also to finish up and just have a chance to see how how the Anglican church is handling some of these things that that are on my mind and, and on the minds of, of the listeners to this podcast in terms of what, what Mormonism is doing. And, and I just appreciate you adding kind of your perspective to all of that and, and uh, wish you the best and, and appreciate you spending some time with us here on the podcast. So thank yeah, you. Yeah. Thank you, Bill. It was really my pleasure. Um, if anybody has any follow up questions, uh, my blog is duanemiller.wordpress.com. Okay. Let me say that again. If anyone has any follow-up questions, uh, they can visit my blog, duanemiller.wordpress.com. Duane is D-U-A-N-E. Um, and, yeah, just go ahead and leave a comment there, and I'm, I'm happy to uh, answer any follow-up questions uh, through, that, uh, through that venue. Awesome. And, and I will put a link on the podcast to that blog, as well as pointing them to both the uh, Kindle and the print version of the book from the publisher. Right. Uh, again, just appreciate you being on, and uh, and thank you for all you do. Great. And also follow me on Twitter. It's at Miller. That would be really good for my self-esteem. So thank you. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Thank you, sir. Yeah, Have thanks, a great Bill. day. Bye-bye. Say what they will now you say